0: November is no-shave November. You guys are aware of this? And Stephen Clay's in. Tabitha, how's that working for you so far? A couple of days in. And uh, several of you are in our efforts to raise money for one of our partnerships, Restoration Hope, uh, in South Africa. we got a team of people going. Our second trip coming up in December. Gary is leading that team. And Gary and I are going man-on-man with this uh, competition. If you'll check it out online and make your donation accordingly. If you want to look today at me and all my manliness, and then look at Gary, you'll have to lean in real close to check Gary out. Really close, maybe with a microscope or some 1.5 reading glasses, and you'll see a little bit of fuzz there. But when I shave, Jason, I, it's it's curbing my masculinity. That's the way I look at it. But um, there we are. Good morning to you. Once upon a time in a land far away, a beautiful, independent, self assured princess happened upon a frog as she sat contemplating ecological issues on the shores of an unpolluted pond in a grassy meadow near her castle. The frog jumped upon her lap and he said, I once was a handsome, dashing prince until an evil witch cast a spell upon me. One kiss from you, my sweet, and I'll turn back into that prince that I was. Then, my love, we can get married and live in Yon Castle where you can prepare my meals, clean my clothes, bear my children, and be forever grateful doing so. Later that night on a lightly sautéed bed of frog legs covered in white wine and onion cream sauce, she said, I don't think so. You know, a lot of times in life, just walking up to somebody and telling them the truth can be a devastating thing. It can be a very brutal thing. Do you know this? Uh, the truth can uh, get us in trouble. Uh, let me ask you this morning: How many of you have ever told a lie? Just go ahead. Yeah, raise your hands. If you've ever told a lie, look at this. I wish we could get the lights up, but go. Keep your hands up. If you've ever told a lie, keep your hands up. It's called prolonged confession. Just keep your hands up. I want to say thank you for your courage. Okay. And if your hand is not up, I want to say thank you, because you just joined the rest of us, right? <laughs> but we, we all tell lies. We tell white lies. We tell bold-faced lies. We tell lies to cover up those other lies, don't we? We lie to people that we don't know. We lie to people that we do know. And lo and behold, when we catch another person in a lie, well, we crucify them. Advertisers lie to sell their products. Well, we don't mean it's fat-free. We mean the fat is free. Spouses lie uh, to manage their reputation, right, to avoid hurting feelings. No, you don't look fat in that. No, I'm not attracted to George Clooney. Parents lie to manage the expectations of their children. We're going to be there soon. Children lie to cover up and to stay out of trouble. Teenagers lie to... to uh, you know, manage their impression to hide their insecurities. Lawyers lie. Well, lawyers lie. I'm just going to say that in church. (laughs) Disregard that when the offering plate goes around. But, you know, lawyers lie. (laughs) Lawyers lie to, to sway the jury. And media lies to sell products. Church people lie to make people think they're something they're not. pastors lie when their charisma outpaces their character. We live in a a lying world and you gave ample evidence. It's in this room today, isn't it? And I believe it's shored up in every human heart. That's me and that's you. And just because I'm elevated by a couple of feet and I'm the one standing talking I've got lights shining off my bald head doesn't mean I'm any better than you in this department. I want you to Take your Bibles this morning if you have one. If you don't, we're going to put the passage up in just a minute. Not just yet, Jay. We're going to put that passage up in just a minute. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to to do what uh, some are, well, they just don't do a lot of. We're going to tackle one of those hard passages, okay? One of those passages that you read, yay, even in the New Testament, and you read it and you think, hmm, why is this in here? Do I believe that? This is one of those passages because I think uh, I've chosen to use this passage to illustrate uh, in this sermon series. Some of you know we're week three in a sermon series called What Not to Wear. We plagiarized that title from the learning channel. The idea is some things look good on you, right? Wear those things. Some things don't look good on you with your blank, fill-in-the-blank figure. Because if you're fill-in-the-blank figure, well, you ought to wear that. Don't, don't wear that. And Paul uses that language in many of our English translations of this Greek New Testament. He says to clothe yourselves, to put on, put off and put on. And two weeks ago, I led us as we, well, we, we did it right here in church. We said don't put on sexual immorality and evil desires, uh, impure passions and covetousness. We, we, we went through those list of five primarily. Uh, we kind of had a sex talk, didn't we? And what that, what that means, what the scripture says about that, the intention of, of God's heart. Last week, if you were here, you were blessed by our very own Dr. Melinda Gann. as she went through the other five, uh, primarily focusing on anger. You don't look good wearing anger. And the next part of that passage, it it gives us one. It says in Colossians 3, uh, it says this, it says, don't put on lying. Lying does not look good on you. When you deceive other people, it doesn't look good on you. And this morning, I want to choose this problem passage from Acts chapter 5. And we're going to read together verses 1 through 10, okay? Now this, let me say this about the book of Acts. This is not metaphor. There is not uh, analogous uh, ideas in this passage. This isn't figurative language. This is not a parable. Uh, some of you know that the book of Acts was written by a physician named Luke. He also penned the gospel of Luke. Duh. But he also wrote the book of Acts, and it was written as a historical account to a guy named Theophilus. Don't worry about that now, but just know this, that he was a physician. That means he probably had poor handwriting, but he really cared about details. He was very smart, and it was very precise and methodical, his approach to this uh, historical account of post-Jesus, which is not all post-Jesus, because you know Jesus is in Acts chapter 1. But let's look at Acts 5, 1 through 10. Do we have that, J Bird? But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Any of you remember when you were a kid you learned a song about Ananias and Sapphira? Anybody sing that song? It was used in the context of being a cheerful giver which is a horribly, um, horrible song if you think about it in its context. Uh, they sold a piece of property, this married couple did. And with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out. Kind of Godfather-like, isn't it? Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Okay, and we'll get to the, that second part in a minute. Second part of, I think that's the first part of verse 11. But she, she breathed her last. Now, does this passage trouble anybody? Does it bother you a little bit? This is a type of passage that we want to... You know, and let me just say this. This passage, I've never heard it preached from directly as the primary text. Uh, I've heard it cross-referenced. I've heard it alluded to. I've heard it mentioned briefly. But you see a passage like this, particularly in the New Testament, the new covenant of Christ, this grace-filled book of wonder and awe and blessing. And you get here and you think, man, you know, we need to water it down. We need to explain it away. This This is a tough passage. It can bother you, can't it? And I would say to you when you read this, well, it ought to bother you. I mean, you read it from the lens of of being a human being, and it's troubling on its surface. But what ought we to make of this passage? Let's get the context. Uh, I mentioned that obviously this is in the book of Acts. It's written by Luke. He's given an accurate historical account of these uh, events that are transgressing or transpiring. And here we know in Acts 1, we see the person of Jesus post-resurrection. You'll be back here. Many of us will be back here. Many more will be back here in April on Easter Day to celebrate uh, what we read about in the account of Acts chapter 1. With Jesus, we see His commissioning. He says to them, I believe that you and I are part of this promise. He says, you will receive power. This, by the way, after they've waited. Have you noticed that a lot of times you have to wait You have to wait to receive a blessing from God. You have to wait to receive His power. He doesn't say, go get it. He doesn't say, shop for it as you would a consumer service product or good. He says, wait, which is probably what the hardest thing to do in life. He says, you guys, y'all, wait here. And you will receive power from the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. We see the commissioning of Jesus. We see the empowering of these disciples. And then we see His ascension. In Acts chapter 2, and I love being a part of the church today, some 2,000 plus years later. Because church leaders like me, some of you uh, in leading this church, we're getting back to the book of Acts, and we're desiring to anyway. And we're getting back specifically to Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2 is when the movement of God really began to take off. It's when the church started. Now, technically, Acts doesn't use the word church until chapter 5. It's the word ecclesia, A-E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, ecclesia. That means church, and it's first used in Acts chapter 5. And that word literally means the church that is gathered. In Acts chapter 3, some cool things happened. In Acts chapter 4, we see the beauty of the church. As the church gained, gained momentum, you know what they did? It's right there in Acts 4. They got in small groups. They got in small groups, house to house, the Bible tells us, and they began meeting needs. They got out of rows and into circles. And the church took off. But listen to me today because this is really important. There were poor people. There were people really hurting. There were people who were victimized by injustice. There were people that really needed help. And God's solution through Jesus was a small band of people that early in Acts, before what we read today, it said that in one day they grew by 3,000. And then they got serious as they got out of rows and into circles and began to share life and began to meet the needs of people. How did they meet those needs? We're introduced to a guy named Barnabas. I love Barnabas. He's one of my favorite characters in the Bible because he was generous because he had the gift of encouragement. His name literally means encouragement. Do you know I pray probably every day for our church? I pray that God gives us generous people. I'm not saying rich people necessarily, but generous people. And I'm praying that God gives us people of encouragement. I believe there's at least a few in our midst that have that gift. And you probably know who you are because I call you some. I, I I go out of my way to hang out with you. Well, Barnabas was one of those guys. He was a positive, encouraging, k love kind of guy, <laughs> and he gave that gift to the church. But we don't know his socioeconomic bracket. Uh, does it matter? But we know that he was a very generous man, and he was a leader in starting this idea. And I love this about the church. You know, we are. I say it often. We're to be a conduit of God's generosity. And Barnabas, man, he led the church in doing what? Those Here's what we know from Scripture in the early stages of Acts. And they continue this on. The fortunate in the church, those who felt blessed, would go sell property. And they would take the proceeds from the sale of their personal property and they would do what? They would lay it at the apostles' feet. And then those apostles, those godly men and women that they trusted in the church, would take... That and they would distribute it to those who had need. And God smiled on this. This was God's idea for the church back then. Anybody think it could be His idea for the church today? Is there any evidence in Scripture that you have that maybe God changed His mind and said we ought not to care about the poor as much? Any evidence in Scripture to say we ought to get really political and leave the poor alone? Any evidence in Scripture that we ought to fight about styles of worship or little petty things? and not care about the poor? Or is this central to the mission of God in being a church? Let me say this. This was not socialism. This was not communism. This was not obligation. This was first century biblical Christianity. And Barnabas set an example. And this couple that we just read about came along behind Barnabas. And they said, I like this guy. I like positive, encouraging, K-love guy. I like his style. I like his manner. I bet you, Ananias and Sapphira, I bet you they started off with pure motives. Just a guess. I bet it was a goodness of God in their heart. That's why when I read this passage, I've got a little awe and fear in me. But they start off with these pure motives and then probably, again, this is me using my sanctified imagination... Deceit set in somewhere along the way, and we see what happened to them. Now, some would like in their watering this down and they're explaining this away in their attempt to take the heat off of God. They say that well, maybe Peter went sort of Darth Vader chokehold, and he killed them. Right? Did you did you take the money? You know, Brandon's a little too far from it. Did you take the money? Or they say maybe because uh, this couple they were exposed. And they were embarrassed, right? If you're ever found out about some great sin, it really, it does damage to your heart. It literally does. And maybe there was some shock thing happening here and they fell. But let me tell you what I believe about it because the scripture says it. I believe it was ready for this. It doesn't preach well today. I believe this was the divine judgment of God. The divine judgment of God. Now, is that problematic? Here is what I'd like you to do: flip back if you have an open Bible to chapter four and verse thirty-three, Acts four thirty-three. Now, this is when man they were hitting stride and good things were happening. In Acts four thirty-three, it says this. It says in there. Let, let's have someone. Let's kind of go spooky here. Charles, are you there? Can you read it in the darkness? Yeah. Loud as you can, sir. In, my, in the ESV, I believe it is, it says great power and great grace. Abundant was the version that Charles Waterloo read from. Isn't that beautiful? though? That, that, that's something I pray for for our church. Wouldn't it be great to see great power and great grace? I think we need that because we need to see miracles of God in our lives. I think we need it because of our sin, because of your sin and my sin. And as your pastor, I get to hear about some of your sin. And I pray regularly that this place is full of God's grace. That we could come and really relax and we could lie less and just be more real. And that's what was happening in the church. But we see great grace and great power in Acts 4.33. But now look at verse Acts 5.11 right after this. It says, what what was the result of this death? Of two people in body bags being carried out. What was the result of that? Someone shouted out great fear. Do you get that? So we go, we see great grace and great power, and we see here great fear. So let me for a minute, in a manner that might seem old school for some of you, let me preach, as Paul would say later in Acts, the whole counsel of God. For if we just take Acts 4.33, you and I might be so inclined to think that it's just power and grace, but you know there's a concept called fear. Some of you know as God began to give give us a dream for this church that we were highly moved by Acts 9.31 that says this early church that they went on in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and in the fear of the Lord. They enjoyed peace. They were building each other up in peace, enjoying what? The comfort of the Spirit and the fear of God and the church increased. You see, a healthy church, a healthy group of people, we're comforted by God. When you're comforted by God, that means you realize God is near. He's, he's, he's with you in the midst of your pain. I'm looking now at the sea of faces before me, and I see parents who have children who are going through something serious with their health. I see marriages that are crumbling or already have crumbled. I see people that are on a lot of medication for depression. I know my own junk and my own stuff. We, you and I, need the comfort of the Holy Spirit, don't we? It's our role to lovingly get close to each other and speak of the comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 3. He's the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Okay, that's a nice concept. But there's a command after that promise. Comfort one another with the comfort that you've been given. Our God is a great comforter. He's not the God of all my comfort. But He's the God of all comfort. So we need that. We need the grace and power of God. But what do we need else also, church? We need the fear of God. Now, what I'm saying to you is some of you, you'll go pay a lot of money at a movie. I'm a movie buff. You guys know this. I'm in church on Sunday morning. Oftentimes at 10 o'clock, I'm in a movie on Sunday night. I love to see movies. But some of you have no trouble with Jason Bourne and Liam Nielsen, right? You have no trouble paying money and seeing those guys exact justice because somebody did something wrong, right? Somebody did something wrong and they're going after them. And you didn't think a second about somebody being carried out. In fact, there's a lot of collateral damage. Men, we like movies when there's a b- just random people killed in an elevator, right? I mean, because they got to go get the target. There's 12 Ukrainian men, you know, making crystal meth and he snaps all of their necks. You have no trouble with that, fellas, but you're, you're wondering a little bit about this passage. And what I'm saying to you is, is there any room in your thinking and mind for God's justice? If the one who gives life, can he also be the one who takes life? Now, let me say this. Uh, In fact, in uh, gaining understanding of this passage, I would write that word down, context. I've given you a little bit of the context. What I'm saying is this, and then write this word down, foundation. These two go together. Write the word foundation down. Now, you ever built a house? What's the most important part of the house? The kitchen, the bath, the master, the basement, the man cave? What's the most important part of the house? It's what, say it. It's the foundation. Would you ever dream having a home built for you and your family? Your dream home. And then you learn at some point that the contractor has done an erroneous foundation. It's very faulty. You would never dream of just going onto the second floor and picking out things. You wouldn't do that, would you? Now what would you do? Would you want to keep him if you knew he'd been lying behind your back and pilfering money and you know just basically pickpocketing you, what would you do? You'd want him removed, right? Because it's the foundation. I'm not saying you'd kill him, necessarily. I know a couple of you have wanted to do that. But you would want him removed. And this is, listen to this, this is the foundation of the church. This is a church at a very important interval. So write these two words down also for explanation of the Scripture. Write descriptive, and next to it write prescriptive. This is a passage that is descriptive. It's telling us about something that happened at a specific time, i.e. the foundation of the church. It is not, de- it is not prescriptive. You can't, it's not like this principle that God says if you lie or have impure motives or withhold money from the church, you'll be killed. Isn't, aren't you glad of that? Now, we do have a process in place when people take up the offering and go uh, down the hall to count it. We have cameras, and if anyone steals, they will be killed at Fondren Church, right? <laughs> now, that's how much we care because this is the foundation. We're still a young church, right? We've got snipers on the roof. It's brutal, okay? Very brutal. But I, I say that jokingly, but here's what I want to say to you. If you have a low view of God and a low view of the church, you're not going to get over this type of passage. But if you have a high view of God and a high view of the church, you're going to be able to grapple with this type of passage. Anybody feel me on that? God really cares about His church. He cares about oppression. He cares about injustice. He wants to make things right, and His vehicle to do that is the church. So we need to be as generous as we can be. We need to live with integrity. We need to remove from deceit. Let me say this. In the New Testament, every time a name is mentioned, whether it's Paul or Barnabas or Luke or Theophilus, whether it's Lydia in Acts 16, whatever the name that's mentioned, Ananias and Sapphira, same thing. They are always leaders in the church, not necessarily Pastors and elders, but they, they could be, or they could be deacons or some type. They could be serving coffee or doing setup, putting out the signs, uh, hanging out in the sip, welcoming newcomers. I mean, all these people were leaders in the church. And I would say this God cares about his church. God had a white, hot, burning passion for his church as it started, and he really cared about leaders. Some of you don't like to think this, but God has a higher standard for leaders. Do you believe that? James chapter 3, read it. Hebrews chapter 13, read it. He does. Now everyone leading at this church, including me, has feet of clay. I say that often, don't I? Because you need to be reminded of that. But if we're going to lead, the standards are going to have to be different. And I'll say it, they need to be higher. How I handle money is very important. I need to lead in my family, and I need to lead in this church. You'll be happy to know I don't handle money at this church. That's part of the system that we have built in. I had breakfast early at Broad Street, and a friend of mine, Thomas Townsend. Y'all know Thomas? He doesn't go here, but Thomas with a tan. uh, He's like George Hamilton. You know what I'm talking about? He sells Mercedes or something. But he offered me $100 in the parking lot of Broad Street today. I guess it was a joke. I don't know. I didn't reach out my hand because I don't want to be in the habit of doing so. It just feels dirty to be a preacher reaching out your hand. Some of you will be late on your offering. and You'll hand it to me after church. I try not to handle it, even if it's a check. Certainly not cash. But we have systems built in because it's very important because God cares. And he wants us to lead well and to be generous. I want to take four things about this passage that I believe are prescriptions for us. The first one is this, if we could put that up. I think we have them all. Let's put this one up first. Deception is more serious than you think. How many of you, when you see that, would kind of nod your head? And you'd say, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of, I, I, you know, I'm not going to go with culture so much on this one. I'm going to lean a little toward more toward God. Deception is more serious than you think. Think with me, if if you will, about change, the word change. How many of you, you like change? And think about what does change. Life is written in sand. Have you noticed that? Everything is just, it's a river. It's a sandy river. It's in flux. It's always changing. My mom is in town. She'll be at the 11 o'clock service. Now don't say, don't tell I'm saying this if you see her in between, but she's, you know, getting older. And we began to talk about what it's like to get older. Because I'm on my way to getting older. And we had a conversation about uh, my grandmother who's 97 years old. And we began to talk about the world in which she was born in and how things have changed. I probably should have put a picture of this, but how many of you remember a typewriter? You ever heard of a typewriter, young people? (laughs) A typewriter was... The most important tool in business for almost a hundred years. Now, I took in tenth grade at Startville High School, I took personal typing. And I want to brag and say I tore it up. I was the top guy in the class. Now, a few girls, a couple of girls I think had the heads up on me, but no guy did. A S D F J K L Semicolon. I started there, man, and these fingers (laughs) did this. You've got to know your home row keys. David Mitchell, David Yarbrough, and Richard Daniel refused to camp out on the home row keys, and I left them in the dust. And I knew I could go clerical if I needed to, right? So there you go, the typewriter. The home row keys. And you remember, any of you remember, you're my age or older, you remember if you messed up? What'd you do? Yeah, you took the white paper out, and you got white out. They still sell this, which is funny to me. I saw it at Office Depot a couple weeks ago. You get white out, and on that mistake, you paint it over your mistake. You hold it up. You blow on it. You dab a little bit more. You shake it. You put it back in, and you retype over that. Does anybody remember that? That's what we used to do. Then they invented, ready? An electric typewriter, which was like the typewriter, but you plugged it in. Amazing. And then they had something called self-correct, if you'll remember that. And then around 1984, I'm going to revise history a little bit, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs were hanging out at a garage in Palo Alto, and they invented the computer, right? And in 1984, man, well, there was computers in the 60s, but it was the size of Duelling Hall. (laughs) And there were scientists in lab coats walking around thinking they could blow up Russia or something, you know. But in 1984, uh, they developed the the PC, and then, you know, it took, I think, Microsoft 1.0, it took 10 minutes to boot up at the time. And do you remember a floppy disk? There was no hard drive. floppy disk. It wasn't floppy, and it wasn't a disk. (laughs) But you'd put that thing in there, right? And then from there, as you guys know, they developed a computer that would fit on your lap, a laptop computer. And they project by 2015, because it's gotten compact and lighter and sleeker and better, that the cell of tablets, which most of us already have, the cell of tablets... Will uh, be greater by 2015 than laptops and desktops combined. And now there's something called Google Glass. Anybody have one of these Google Glass? You put it on, like Warren's wearing glasses right here. They're Google Glass. You put it on. It's a full Android computer, and what a computer used to do in the 60s that was the size of Dueling Hall. This can do a hundred times better just wearing it. And a woman yesterday, uh, Friday in Temecula, California, was pulled over and ticketed for wearing a Google Glass. But life changes, doesn't it? And in a world of creativity and innovation and venture capital and high risk and startups, Malachi 3.6 is still true. I, the Lord, do not change. Well, what about God doesn't change? His character doesn't change. James chapter 1. It says that every good gift is from God and it comes down from whom? The Father of lights, with whom there's no shifting shadow or variance. He's the same. Hebrews 13 says, yesterday, today, and forever. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, he's the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are just. He's a God of truth and without iniquity. God's a rock. He doesn't change. In Numbers 23.19 it says, God is not like a man who will lie. He is not like a human who will change his mind. His character doesn't change. What else about God doesn't change? His power doesn't change. His power. His strength is always vital. And you think about it with humanity. You look at us and you think, well, you know, human strength, it ebbs. Human vitality, it flows. It flows south. Human attractiveness goes south. Uh, there's, There's a downward spiral to us, but God doesn't change. I used to have hair. I don't so much anymore. The once bustling downtown of my abundantly populated scalp has now become a vast wasteland of burned out storefronts and boarded up windows as the occupants moved to the outlying suburbs of my neck, ears, back, and nose. That's my story. I'm deteriorating rapidly. Hair that used to be here is here and in there right? But God's power doesn't change. Mine gets weaker by the month and by the year. But God's power is always strong. His hearing is always acute. His arm is always strong and responsive. He doesn't change. His character doesn't change. His power doesn't change. And let me tell you a third thing doesn't change. It's important for this morning. His hatred of sin doesn't change. And God hates it that families are being torn apart because of lying and deception. He hates it that hearts are wounded, that children get toppled, that they are the damaged ones in a home where there's lying and deception. God hates that. And it's easy for us maybe to think, and I don't want to be that church, and I'm telling you, I don't want to be that preacher that stands up here and says God is changing with every ebb and flow of our culture. And because our culture is growing more tolerant, because we're winking at sin and nodding at things that we used to not do, it's easy for us to think that God is mellowed out, that He's chilled out. But God hates lying and He hates deception. He hates that greedy people get their hearts full and they invariably take from those who are poor. It breaks the heart of God. It's sin that He hates when injustice is allowed to roam free and people get oppressed and pulled back. God cares. And that's why we say this morning that deception is more serious than you think. The second point. Here we go. Satan is more deceptive than you can imagine. Write down Revelation 12, 9. It says Satan is seeking to deceive the whole world. Write down 1 Corinthians two eleven. Paul says there that we don't want to be outwitted by the schemes of Satan. Now, after you write down Revelation 12, 9 and 1 Corinthians 2, 11 about our enemy, look back at Acts chapter 5. And I believe it's verse 3. What does Peter say there? He says in verse 3 that to Ananias and Sapphires, he says, Satan has filled your heart. Anybody recognize that? Don't nudge the person next to you. Anybody recognize that? I try to use that expression at home a lot to my children. Satan has filled your heart. I like to say that especially to my youngest at bedtime. But this is the same expression that's used of Judas who betrayed Christ. This idea that money and possessions and material things pull us away... And he says, Satan has filled your heart. But in verse 4, it says, Peter says to them, you have contrived this evil deed in your heart. Now, which is true? Did Satan plant it in there or did they contrive it? I would say both are true. Now, let me tell you about my life years ago. I believed in God, but I wasn't sure about Satan. I went through a period of kind of selective agnosticism of Thomas Jefferson type of Bible interpretation. I was like, can I really believe this? Because I've never been a Satan behind every bush kind of person. Like some of you may be. Some of you, man, you're really intense about spiritual warfare. And it's Satan this, Satan that, Satan this. And I don't necessarily believe that Satan is our one and only enemy. And I think it's a bad practice when some of us begin to blame Satan for our own laziness and our own self-inflicted problems. The Scripture teaches us, let me be clear so I don't get any hate mail. The Scripture teaches that we have three enemies. Satan is one, then the world, and then our own heart. But I went through this period, but now the longer that I've lived, the longer that I've ministered and that I have counseled and worked with people, the more I believe in the reality of what Paul says in Ephesians 6, that your enemy is not not flesh and blood, but it's the unseen forces. It's principles and powers And He's real and He can plant things in your heart. Does that scare you a little bit? But your heart can also contrive evil deeds. Last week I was in Atlanta. You guys know the city of Atlanta. In North Atlanta, years ago, they built this intersection where two major highways converge, I-285 and I-85. It's north of Atlanta. I say an intersection, but I don't mean an intersection with a, a traffic light and a right turn. I mean a monstrosity of 20th century engineering. I mean, there are exit ramps and overpasses. It's just amazing to see this thing from a helicopter from the sky. It's amazing. A local radio station years ago when it was being built, they had a contest to give it a nickname. My favorite that I read at the time was one a nickname called the Car Strangled Spanner. And then the name they eventually gave it was Spaghetti Junction. Are you aware of the Spaghetti Junction? Many a person, thousands of people through these years have traveled into Spaghetti Junction with a smile on their face and a song in their heart. Only an hour later to drive away, making a vow, having a vision of selling all their property and moving to the country, right? And I would say to you this morning that your heart is a hub. All of life, good and bad. It comes at you from many directions but it always passes through your heart. Now here's what we know about the heart. In Romans 5, it tells us that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. But it says in Jeremiah 19 that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. I quote that verse a lot to this church, You know, because I want anybody sitting under my teaching to know that the Bible talks about the dignity of our heart, but the depravity of our heart. And it's not a good rule just to follow your heart. Because it's deceitfully wicked. Above all else, the prophet Jeremiah says. And I wonder today, if you've let Satan get a hold of your heart, if if you've contrived some evil in your heart because you've been going through the spaghetti junction and there are traffic lights and turn lanes and intersections and exit ramps and overpasses and angry motorists and angry motorists that have hurt your heart today. And you've chosen the lesser path. You've chosen the path of image management, of impression projection, of seeking not to live the truth, but to live according to a lie. And your heart has been hurt. The third thing I would say beyond uh, this is that truth is the only antidote for, de- for deception. Put up First Samuel chapter 12 as we begin to close. Samuel says this at the end of his life. He had lived well. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and in His anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right their response, you have not cheated or oppressed us. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Now I would say to you that I would like to get to the end of my life and be able to ask everyone that's known me, everywhere that I've served, I would be able to ask, Now I would change the language. I wouldn't say ox or donkey, but I would change the language there. But I would love to be able to ask the same and I would love to get the same response back from children and grandchildren and any of the greens that go behind them and for them to be able to say no you practiced what you preached not to live perfectly but to live honestly you guys the longer you're around me you know that I don't live perfectly some of you have known me for years and you could stand up and tell stories of where I've let you down. It happened Friday. I lead a men's group at 6.30 at Brent's. I showed up about 7 o'clock Friday morning, 30 minutes late. Not good if you're the leader. And I'd like to tell you that Josh Ginn and Mark Baldwin and Mark Grooms and some of those guys were gracious to me, Hudson Frisbee, but they weren't. They piled on. But I remember driving late thinking, oh, no, I've never done that. Oh, I'm late. Oh, my goodness. And you know what I started to do? I started to think, what can I tell them? I was serving at a soup kitchen. (laughs) I had run a marathon. I was at the hospital at 2 a.m. visiting someone from the church. Right? I began to think about some tale I could spin. And I just walked in and took their grief. You know, it's something amazing in my heart and yours that just there's a darkness, isn't there? And then, when something happens to us, we immediately get defensive, like a wounded animal in the corner, and we want other people to think. Even if it gets to the point of us lying. But what if we wanted to? What if we could live this way? The last thing. Uh, Did you see this coming? Anybody? Anybody notice we preach Jesus every Sunday? Truth is Christ. We're going to close with this. First John chapter one. Read that silently. Next, First John, Chapter One. You know this. It says that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth of God is not in us. But the antidote to that is that if we confess our sins, do you know this? Say it with me. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I bet that's many of you today. Because you think about lying and you know you've been caught. There's been deception in your life. But man, we preach the grace of God. This is not a sermon today about one little lie and you're carried out in a body bag. This is a sermon about the grace and power of God, about a God that takes sin seriously, but a God that takes forgiveness seriously as well. You see like the electric typewriter, that self-correcting thing that it has? There's no real human condition like that, a self-correcting human. We like to think that we are. But there is a human condition called self-destructing. And we need God's grace in our lives. It looks really good on you, this thing of called honesty. Lying and deception doesn't look good on us. God help us, all of us. Because all of us lead. John Maxwell, not our John Maxwell, but the other guy, the leadership guy. John Maxwell says that everybody's a leader. Some of us lead tens of people. Some of us lead hundreds. Some are called to lead thousands. And even a few people have led millions of people in some capacity. But we're all leaders. And my prayer is that every leader, everybody in here, would see this the way God sees it. Truth and honesty through Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that you give us room in our theology, in our worldview, in our understanding of God, that you don't change. Your character doesn't change. Your power doesn't change. Your hatred of sin doesn't change. And your love of people doesn't change. And Lord, give us room to allocate in our thinking that, Lord, the giver of life is the taker of life. And that there ought to be more room in our world for the fear of God. And Lord, I thank you that you love this thing called the church, the ecclesia, the church that is gathered and the church that is also scattered from home to home, house to house, the church that meets outside of these walls. You really care about it. And you care that we are generous. And Lord, you'll go to great lengths to make sure that we're caring for the poor, that our church is a generous church. Lord, I pray, as David prayed in Psalm 51, Lord, that you desire truth in the innermost parts. And I pray for us today. I pray that we would grow up and that we would go beyond the childish, spiritually childish idea of we're getting away with it because we're fooling people. When you tell us you desire truth in the innermost parts and what a joy What a liberating force in our lives if we were the same person in town and out of town. The same person public and private. Lord, that we would be whole and integrated in men and women of integrity. Lord, guard us against deceit. I pray that we wouldn't want to be outwitted by the schemes of the enemy. And God, for those He's winning against today, for wounded hearts and broken families, and depressed minds, confusion, God have Your way. In Christ we pray. Amen. Church, would you stand? And as you do, we're gonna we're gonna be down front. Melinda, if you would uh, stand this way and. Um... Jason Hester, if you're able to stand down here. and Jason and Melinda and I will be down front. And we would, listen church, we'd love to pray for you today. Any need in your life, a decision that you feel led to make, if we could come around you today with a handshake, with a hug, with a prayer, we would love to be able to do that today. Would you worship Christ as we sing together as Topher leads us? And don't worry about what other people think. And the room gets a little crowded sometimes. But there's room for you to come today to be prayed for. For a few minutes, we pray. That is our prayer. And our charge to you that this room would be a room of prayer and worship.